Hello, it's episode 12 of On Design. Hello, I'm Stuart Chapman, and this is the Big Pictures On Design podcast, a podcast which is on, around, and near the topic of design. In this episode, it was my great pleasure to chat with Jonathan Ford, who is founding creative partner and CEO of Pearlfisher. Pearlfisher's portfolio includes formative work on some of the world's best-known and best-loved brands, including Cadbury Dairy Milk, Green and Blacks, Waitrose, Target, Jamie Oliver, and more. Pearl Fisher recently marked a quarter century, so Jonathan and I talked about that achievement and his reflections on the work they've produced. We talked about their process and why they have an integrated futures team, as well as what climbing Kilimanjaro taught him about the responsibility of designers to the planet. I went to visit Jonathan at Pearl Fisher's light and airy office in West London, and we started by talking about their defining philosophy of challenges and icons. Pearl Fisher's been in business for 25 years. Over that time, we have really sort of done, I think, the most effective work with brands which are either sort of in their sort of early phase development mm. um, or that have been sort of around for some time and are nurturing what makes them special. There are many types of brands, uh, but if you define those two groups a little bit sharper, you'll find that the ones that are really interesting and, and making change um, are by default challenges because they are they are bringing new ideas to people and um, and they're doing it through brand through product through delivery experience uh, you know the, the whole thing and there's 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 great ethos often behind these these brands and there's uh, there's real you know real identifiable personalities and and it's often sort of personal beliefs which kind of are shaping the way these brands actually sort of behave and they're ultimately challenging the status quo mm. and and they know that design is one of the most powerful things at their disposal that can help them make their statement when they arrive and it's not because it's cheaper than advertising but they have to define what that brand stands for and they have to make their space and they know that um, that design is something which is a, a permanent statement about you know who you are and it's what connects the, the you know the product and the brand, and um, and so challenges are very interesting that they use design in a very powerful way to say look what's different. Mm. Um, icons or the other the other lot which have been around for some time are about you know, nurturing what makes them special, and they're not necessarily always iconic brands, um, but they could be it could be a clearly defined iconic brand like Cadbury Dairy Milk, you mm. know? Um, but does it have iconic design? And, and and I think that's the you know the job that we would want to do is to match iconic design with with iconic with an iconic brand. Is there well, a different um, is there a different design approach or strategic approach you take for a challenger versus an icon, or is it the same? Do the same principles apply? No, there are, I think there are very different principles that apply, but then there are some overarching principles that, that so, so I think you can't just sort of you know take a sort of a, a well loved icon and then sort of you know you know and 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 and, and apply challenger design principles to it that would basically sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. It's more about nurturing at the iconic end. With the challenges, it's about, you know, you know, 
defining what you're challenging and then expressing it through sort of very very powerful statements. Um, but I think the best iconic brands are the ones which retain their challenger spirit. And, you know, the, the most valuable company in the world is arguably, you know, uh, the best example of that. Um, but there's plenty of other ones as well. So I think, I think you know, it, it, to be iconic, you, you are, you, you become that over time. Um, but you are born a challenger. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a question whether you can retain that spirit as you grow. And in terms of retaining that um, challenger spirit as you grow, I'm one of the people I had the privilege of talking to on this podcast was Dan Germain at Innocent, who mm. I know you, um, you worked with Innocent at mm. an early stage. Mm. And we were talking about some of the challenges of um, how you maintain that um, challenger mm. mode of operating, mm. even as you become quite big. So do you think there are any great secrets to how you do that? Um, or is it just on a brand by brand basis? Uh, well, it is definitely a brand by brand basis because what makes Innocent special is, say, different to what made Yo Sushi special. Um, but then there are some, you know, connecting sort of things. Passionate founders, you know, finding a kind of a new niche and uh, and then sort of like you know, expanding that and you know, uh, but retaining what makes you you special as you scale. Um, so, but uh, and and uh, and I think that uh, probably you know that is the challenge that as a challenger becomes. Um, starts to explode mm. um, you know a number of things happen um, be careful what you wish for you know because you suddenly become this gleaming shining sort of you know sort of uh, object of desire um, for a corporate acquisition and mm. as you know Innocent is no longer an independent company it's owned by Coca-Cola so I think I think with that kind of acquisition which Green and Black's um, has been through as well um, throws up all sorts of uh, challenges which can you know basically be sort of pitfalls in the road um, mm. and in order for you to I think have a successful uh, you know transition into a, a more mass um, take up of your challenger brand um, is is to sort of you know aim to become iconic that's mm. the sort of that is the, that would be the strategy um, but with this challenger, um, ethos um, still very much alive and I think if that challenger ethos gets strangled or lost along the way through various kind of you know acquisitions and mergers and demergers which is where I feel Green and Blacks has got to mm. um, that ethos starts to sort of like be lost and product quality starts to change and what made it special in the first place becomes something that it isn't and that, the the pathway to Becoming truly iconic, I think, is littered with sort of lots of, of brands that have sort of lost their way along the way because maybe success has kind of created um, too much of a sort of a pressure on, on, on the original founders. Uh, but I think Innocent is a good one because um, Dan is, was very much part of the... Um, that you know that founding team, and he's very much part of it now, even though it's owned by Coca-Cola, and yet they are accepting that they're no longer a sort of a, a niche innocent smoothie brand you know mm. um in west london but they are a global juice brand and but with that ethos and and um and passion very much alive in that bigger context and um and 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 i think that that that's a measure of, of i think the success that a, you know a company like coca-cola is is doing these days which is uh, not just acquiring and smothering and killing but sort of acquiring and allowing a growth to happen mm. but it, it's not an easy path to go from being small niche and loved to being you know a global icon yeah and what happens <clears throat> at the other end of the scale when um 
because sometimes uh, big multinational companies want to start a new brand. So how would you how do you approach that kind of challenge? Is that a kind of a challenge you've experienced? Um, yeah, I mean, I think what you're really getting at is, is that we need to be really clear that not all challenges are husband and wife startups in <laughs> yeah. sort of West London. I mean, you know, Google was a is a challenger brand, you know, and it was, yeah, you know, probably I don't know how that started, but I mean, well, we all know roughly, but uh, <laughs> but you know, pretty rapid ascendancy, and um, and with on a, on a different type of scale and different type of sort of uh, you know culture. So so challenges can come from all starts, all, all, all places, but I think. I think if you're a corporation, you need to be a very special corporation to really kind of foster a, a challenger spirit from within. Mm-hmm. And I think Google is a very big corporation, that is no doubt. And they have departments which are all about free thinking and kind of generating ideas, like get the idea and then see if it fits. And Google Glass is a good example of that. You mm-hmm. know, They're quite prepared to try things and fail. And I think that's really, really admirable. Um, and, and I think, you know, if you've got the... If, you, if your company spirit allows that kind of thing then you know you are you are I think creating the right kind of culture for more success than failure for example Mm. but I think it's very difficult for especially for uh, shareholder driven companies um, to innovate to create true challenges from within when by default the mechanism of a shareholder driven corporation Mm. is quite hierarchical and uh and driven by short-term returns. I think a lot of designers spend, by default, find themselves and put themselves down in the weeds. And I think design is recognized now, um, you know, in today's day and age, pretty universally um, by the most forward-thinking companies as, as one of the biggest differentiators that you can use to build brand value. So therefore, it has sort of boardroom kind of value. And mm. some of my most interesting conversations are with chairman of, of companies. So. I would say that in those shareholder-driven type environments that you want to have that conversation at a most senior level possible and be able to hold it at that level. Mm. Um, but I think that uh, the, you know, corporations have also recognised that it is actually pretty hard to innovate in a way that some of the, uh, I think the way that you're, you're suggesting. So there other strategies are, um, you know the companies are now set up incubator units for example or mm. that are sort of attached to that corporation but operate independently mm. that are looking for the new startups in whatever kind of area it is to, uh, and then to perhaps invest in them in, in exactly the same way that I think you know the startup investor community sort of works but they're just doing it from a, a sort of a corporate point of view yeah. so that these big sort of innovation teams that try and innovate but then re- you know, kind of like have difficulties within a corporate structure, um, are can carry on and do what they try and do, but then there's a separate unit which is fostering, you know, up and coming sort of brands and companies and ideas and initiatives. And a good example of that would be, I suppose, uh, Unilever Ventures um, and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Diageo have Distill Ventures um, where they're looking for sort of new exciting up and coming drinks and investing them and um, and that, that's the sort of thing that I think is 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 a sort of a an acknowledgement that you've almost got to create a separate structure to sort mm-hmm. of truly innovate at a challenger level um, if you're going to do that and one of the things I noticed that uh, Pearl Fisher does uh, is um, it's quite provocative through your futures uh, team um, so what is the futures team and and why does Pearl Fisher have one well so this, I'm a designer um, I wear many hats now but I, I always felt that my best uh, creativity came from an informed point of view. 
Um, there are other designers which will just kind of magic something up out of thin air and and sort of, and it will be pure genius. Uh, I'm not one of those, unfortunately, but uh, my partner is. Um, and and but so the way that I feel about uh, things is that context is is really sort of king. Um, and if you have a an idea of the way that the world is changing, and you do you know thorough research, for example. Um, and you gain insights and you uh, identify what are the big shifts in culture, then you have context and you're able to say to your, your client that has owned a 50-year-old brand that is in sort of, you know, perhaps it's struggling, um, is lost its relevance or needs refreshing or, you know, whatever it is, that, and, and that, that same very same client is troubled by the issue of change and how do I you know, refresh and change and what do I need to do? But if you can provide context, you know, let's say for it's a food, well-known food brand that is just kind of, you know, just is not as relevant as all these challenges that are around. But if you have context and you can say the future of food is moving in, you know, one of six directions, and these two are the most relevant one for you, Mr. Client, with this food brand that is struggling, mm. then you have context for change. And so Futures gives us that, that sort of that, that backdrop of, of cultural change um, that is relevant to particular brands in an area that we're interested in. And, and, and that then, um, with, that, with that context, we can then really define sharp strategies and then create design. And that, that future is connected to strategy, which is then connected to design, is our offer. Um, and that's, our, that's what we do. It's on our website and it's what you're, you're clearly interested in. Mm. But it's not just say, simply saying, we're, you know, we are designers. We are designers that are, uh, you know, working to, you know, razor sharp strategies, which is informed by a future context, mm. and 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 that that works very well for us. It's mm. that's our way of doing things. So you, you worked on the Fem brand yep. in China. Mm. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because that's. Um, uh, feminine hygiene brand, which um, and it, your website says it harnesses the power of branding to drive the kind of cultural change that young Chinese women have been waiting for. Yeah, so so exactly. I mean, well, good design resolves problems, and um, and I think that uh, 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 and presents solutions. So in China, feminine hygiene is a taboo subject. I think I think the the statistics were, you know, incredibly low. It was down single digits. I think it's like four or five percent of. Of, uh, of women in China uh, have availability or even knowledge of, um, uh, you know, tampon usage. And, um, and, uh, and that, you know, from a, from a feminine point of view, that's, uh, that's both a sort of a problem but also an opportunity. So um, the opportunity being that uh, a young challenger brand in, in, um, in, in uh, China came to us uh, posing that, you know, that question, uh, saying that they wanted to do... Um, Use new ways of reaching women um, I, through e-commerce and mobile to create a brand that would be that would that would meet their needs. And of course, you know, everyone's gone online these days. So, you know, young Chinese women and well, all Chinese women are as connected now in their own sort of like their own internet sphere as we are over here. So, everyone knows what is needed, but then it is very difficult to get products. So, using the idea of tapping into uh, new insights and you know, a need, and new delivery mechanisms, you know, ordering online, and uh, we created an e-commerce brand called Fem, 
And I think that's often over, under, overlooked in this conversation about FM is that it is an e-commerce brand, and um, and uh, and it and it taps into uh, you know a, a, a market which is not being supplied. It's still you know traditionally going through sort of stores. Mm. Um, it's very kind of like hidden and tucked away. The major brands in there don't don't speak in a very relevant way to the to the you know the Chinese market, the Chinese female market. And by um, you know by creating this new brand called Fem with with very uh, I think kind of uh, evocative brand imagery, um, it just speaks naturally to Chinese women who are very happy to purchase discreetly online and you know you know carry with them in their in their daily life alongside everything all your other sort of, you mm. know lifestyle needs. So so it's um it it's kind of makes it sound simple really, but because the market is so voluminous. Um, and the and the you know the gap was so big, you know they've been a massive success, and uh, we're doing a number of different projects with them now. And um, you talked about the e-commerce, um, mm. the opportunities that e-commerce uh, brings, and I can see that uh, for a product where consumers do feel hesitant about buying it in a mm. store, mm. like it alleviates that. But mm. I think we're seeing like a, a great rise of the direct to consumer mm. model and. Mm. Uh, brands seeing the opportunities that that presents. So, where do you see that going? What do you think the future is for that Just area? More, um, uh, you know, more and cleverer ways of sort of connecting. I mean, you know, it's it's. I mean, delivery is hardly sort of new home delivery, but uh, but I think the methods um, I think that that are employed and the types of brands. You know, Graze, I think, is just a sort of a standout sort of master of, of not just providing a healthy product to you every day, but the way they do it. And you can, I don't know if you watched the podcast that I did with did, uh, Anthony. Yeah. I mean, it was it was outstanding, you know, kind of like how quickly they'd inf- adapted to um, using technology to, you know, preempt and and also kind of measure innovations. And, you know, this conversation we had earlier about innovation, you know, when I started out the business 25 years ago, I worked with a big drinks company and they used to talk about innovation taking 10 years for it to be successful. Mm. Anthony talks about 48 hours. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, and they can measure that through algorithms and consumer feedback and how people respond to the take-up of a new um, initiative coming from Grays. And um, and, and they, they build, you know, really dynamic conversations with their sort of, you know, customer base and and um, and you feel like it's a really intimate brand and yet it's a sort of a tech brand you know with with robots picking all sorts of different selections of sort of healthy snacks for you and getting mm-hmm. them through your front door and um, and so you've got brands like that which are doing things very new you've got the whole um, I think area of you know food delivery restaurant you know takeout being transformed by Deliveroo and then brands like Wagamama sort of you know realizing that actually it's no good you know, you just delivering your 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 food through a sort of a third party delivery service, and it arriving in a generic way. So they're paying attention to how their packaging both protects and retains, um, you know, the kind of the quality of the food whilst it's in transit uh, to a to a Wagamama standard. And yet, when it arrives in the home, because people are feeling much more comfortable eating at home these days, in our big flat screen worlds that we live in and our high speed internet, you know, why go out when mm. you can dine in? And, and so the packaging, when it arrives, actually conveys the Wagamama experience, um, both functionally and aesthetically, um, in home. So, so, the, so I think um, direct to consumer, which is your question, I think that's just going to be, uh, it, it, it's the future. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I think we'll see massive changes to traditional retailing as a result of that. 
And the way the way that brands or the way that consumers experience brands has changed enormously over the last few years. Um, what does that mean for design agencies? And how does how has Pearlfisher had to adapt over the twenty five years that it's been in business um, to reflect the changing the way in which consumers experience brands? Yeah. So I think you know if I look at our our project makeup at the moment, let's say. About forty percent of of the projects that we do, I think, could could fall into a a much more broader brand experience kind of category than our heritage, which is you know, brands and packaging, and and that is still very much you know core, and we're very proud of it, and we still do some of our best award winning work in that in the the brand and packaging kind of area, but but because the world of design has been you know recognised as uh, an essential uh, you know ingredient in fulfilling the, the sort of the, the 360 world of, of brand behavior these days um, our briefs are therefore expanded mm. um, you know we you know advertising has had its day in its traditional format that's not a controversial statement it's fact um, people don't look at ads this way they used to um, it doesn't mean the same things. So advertising has become communication, and if you look at these big ad agencies, which are you know talking about all sorts of things from data to kind of you know direct and all these you know the things which are you know definitely going on there. Um, ultimately, it boils down to it. A lot of these big communications agencies are thinking about how they can fulfil a brand promise through the engagement at every level that that brand touches mm-hmm. its consumer which inevitably means an interesting online experience that has to be designed. Um, An interesting physical experience, well, that has to be designed too. An interesting product experience, well, that has to have something surrounding it in order for you to engage with it. So that needs to be designed too. So, so, So the world of design is far more important than it's ever been credited for in the past. And then, then I think sort of other forms of communication at this point in time, and that isn't to denigrate the power of social media at all. Um, um, you know that is that is a big, big way to kind of you know engage with people, but but ultimately these are short term messages, mm. and design is something very physical. It's a manifestation of your brand and 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 the product that 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 that, that, that you are offering in whatever shape or form it is. So, so I think that. Uh, that we have adapted, uh, brands have adapted, and we, so, so the, world's, the world has adapted, has just changed, brands have changed, we have changed, and, and yet at the same time, we stay sort of loyal to our sort of core, mm. and there are things that we definitely don't do that other agencies are, are much better at doing, and, and, if, and if our clients ask us for that kind of thing, then we will partner other people to do it. Let's talk about you for a moment. How did you find your way into these, this crazy world of design? Well, I, how far back do you want to go? I mean, I was I was pretty crap at school at everything apart from um, you know, drawing and scribbling and things like that, and uh, you know, and uh, I, I was just always found myself sort of drifting into my imagination, sort of with a sketch pad and a piece of paper, or just a piece of paper and doodling whilst I was failing at every other subject. Um, and, um, and, uh, and, and it was only my art teacher that, that sort of like recognized that. And, um, and he, so I think I was encouraged at school to, to follow art. And then, um, at, at 
my best friend's brother was a was a was a graphic designer, and I didn't know what that was. It sounded all very exciting, and um, and so I, I spoke to him about you know what what he did, and you know it was a very you know, basic sort of it felt very basic, but it, but exciting at the same time back then, and um, so I you know I was advised by him and my art teacher to go on a foundation course and then study graphic design. And um, and then found myself sort of like choosing between photography or graphic design. You know which one did I want to go down? I was very I did my thesis on fashion photography, and I nearly sort of went down that path, um, but veered back onto the path of design. And then in 1984, I left with a with a kind of a degree, and um, and and no job advice whatsoever. And uh, so I just I just chose the by that time I was a bit more savvy as to who was who and what was what. And and in the eighties, branding in its in it was was sort of having was was exploding, mm. branding and brand design. And there were a, there was probably four or five really influential agencies that were of that moment, and um, and the, the, there was a, an agency called the Michael Peters Michael Peters and Partners, and um, that was sort of like right up there as like you know winning DNA D pencils and things like that and. Through my own sort of like, you know, analog kind of research, I saw the work they were doing and I was like, oh, I really want to work there, but I never thought I could. So I uh, spent the summer of 84 sort of um, going for 20 different interviews at different agencies, having turned down some very well respected agencies that have since become, yeah, you know, since that, because they were small then, but they've now become sort of where not even knowing what I was saying no to. Yeah, um, 20 different interviews. 20 different interviews, yeah. Gosh. Um, having been offered a job on my first one, I was saying no to them. It was a company called, well, it is called Cody Porter Bell, and I, I'd never mm. heard of them, so I thought I'm not going to work there. Um, and um, <laughs> and make it. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and um, and then started to get quite despondent about you know the fact that you know by interview ten things weren't sort of work, weren't working so well, and um, and sort of and then finally sort of at the end of the summer of '84, I, I got this kind of. Um, you know, just through sort of a bit of creativity, I mean, I, I designed something that was a uh, that would get attention when it was mailed to the creative director, and I followed up on that. It was a bit persistent, and I got an interview, and uh, and then um, and it was offered a sort of you know work experience, you know, the next day, and uh, so I, I said, yeah, I'll work for free, and uh, they didn't want me to work for free, but I, but that's kind of that's how I was feeling by the time, and that. Mm. That got me into the Michael Peters group, which I was I couldn't believe that I'd actually working there, and um, and uh, I went through. It was a really magical time because the eighties was sort of like this kind of uh, time when consumer booming was taking place. It was the sort of the crazy time of uh, you know Thatcher, Reagan, you know, kind of Wall Street, you know, sort of greed is good, and branding and consumerism went sort of like ballistic. And and being a young designer uh, at that time was was you know, I touched some amazing briefs, and uh, I can safely say that I was actually an '80s designer yuppie, if uh, <laughs> anyone knows what that means, and uh, and I could probably write a book about that. And I found myself in '89 going to New York to work for Michael Peters, who who was expanding very fast. Uh, his company had gone public, and um, and I was on a roller coaster, being sent to do things that were just. In, you know, just impossibly ambitious, and um, and went to New York and uh, and basically just had everything I knew at that point that I thought I was kind of uh, you, know, you know an expert in turned on its head, 
And uh, just like that, the book written by Tom Wolfe, which is called The Bonfire of the Vanities, I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's well worth a read. Um, it, it, the, my world imploded because Michael Peters went bankrupt exactly a year to the day that I arrived in New York. And not because it was, I, I arrived in New York, but because he'd expanded too far. Mm. Uh, was All the great things were sort of countered by the bad things and pr- pr- probably poorly advised, a recession, you know, overextended, you know, couldn't pay the, you know, the, the you know, the, you know, the bank loans, and therefore was put into receivership. So I went through a, 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 his bankruptcy at first hand, and that I think was probably the second most formative experience of my professional career. Mm. Um, the first one having sort of grown with him, and the second one sort of basically sort of just watching the, you know, the, you know, the, the whole empire come sort of tumbling down. <laughs> Last days of rain. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was like literally like that from a design point of view because it, it was such a big company mm. um, to, to sort of go down and um, and watch it all come down and, and sort of be part of a, a team that negotiated a sort of a, a survival pathway that uh, and meant that we were ended up you know, being owned by somebody else who then also got into trouble. Um, who then you know offered us a management buyout three you know so three years later I've gone through you know, several sort of mayhem sort of scenarios, and 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 at that point I said enough's enough. I feel like I've learned enough now. You know um, I've learned all the good things and I've learned some pretty bad things. Time to put it into Pearl Fisher. So I came back to uh, in London in '92 and uh, with Karen and and reunited with Mike. Who we'd worked with all three of us had worked at Michael Peters in the '80s and pooled our experiences, pooled our, you know, the, the available sort of resources we got and we started Pearl Fisher. And you've grown enormously since then. Um, and last year you opened in Copenhagen. Mm. Uh, so what led you to expand into Scandinavia? So a number of circumstances. I think, I think we, you know, we're a private company still. So the three of us still own it. Um, we try and empower our teams as uh, much as possible and, um, and, and to sort of create a sort of a, a growth mindset um, across the company, and what that does is then it allows you know the partners to sort of think about things which are you know ambitious but sort of um, aligned with our philosophies, and um, and we've also built up some great relationships with people over the years. So it it uh, I knew um, some of the design the Danish design community very well, um, and there was a you know one particular person who is sort of had a very similar sort of background to, to myself, who quite quite it's quite spooky how sort of similar he is to, to, to in his pathway to mine, albeit in a Danish context. And and we got on very well and um, and the, the timing was right. So we decided to you know form a partnership that would um, extend our footprint into Scandinavia. And ultimately it's about friendship and I think uh, a uh, a design uh, centric culture. Um, if you've been to you know, Denmark, you know Copenhagen, you know, pretty much all of Denmark is very. The design is just innately within Danish culture, and um, and so much so that they can't see it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think they don't even know what to do with like this kind of just innate. Everything looks beautiful, you know, and 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 is aesthetically kind of um, uh, you know just pleasing, and um, and so so that was it was a great way to to sort of. Do something that felt easy to do and the right thing to do, and it's done in, in a way that can, you know, empower them to grow something special. Has any of that uh, Danish design influence started to infuse um, Perfusion more broadly? Well, I think I think that, uh, Danish design. Well, there's a 
some dangerous objects around the studio. <laughs> and uh, but I think I think it's you know as I said, design is innate in that culture. It's it's innate within Pearl Fisher. And then there are just there are other cultural differences which sort of cross over. But I think I I, I think it's 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 the, the big turn on is just you know doing something with design in a sort of a with a can do attitude in in an environment that accepts it. You know, not all cultures are design ready um, or design design innate, shall we mm. say? Um, and design means so many things to different people these days. So. Um, so it, it's just a sort of a bit of a fun roller coaster at the moment that we're on. You know, I'm not trying to put too much pressure on it, but um, but uh, but but allow it to grow, you know, slowly and and um, that is in the right way for Denmark. Mm. And um, as well as the uh, personal journey you've been on with uh, Pearlfisher over the last twenty five years, mm. you've also been on a much more real uh, personal journey recently as you climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Mm. Uh, so mm. what inspired that? Uh, that decision to do that. Oh, interesting question. Uh, so, well, I'm involved in a charity outside of Pearl Fisher, which is an environmental uh, charity that promotes sustainable farming practices for you know, smallholder farmers in Kenya. And uh, so really it was a sort of a, it started out as a uh, fundraising exercise to help them. But, you know, I, I, you know, I quite like doing things that are outside of Pearl Fisher that have nothing to do with design. Um, and uh, that just comes from sort of other passions and interests which you know my youth were sort of sporting things um, and so I, I suppose I you know like to keep those that kind of spirit alive so the spirit of adventure and and actually you know doing something that would raise money and fusing that it all just felt like yeah I'll, I'll, I'll sign up for that and um, but the thing is is that the the effect of that was much bigger than actually the sort of the, 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 you know, the considered decision to do it. I mean, I just said, yeah, I'll do it. It'll be a fun thing to do. Um, it's <laughs> was there. it fun? Uh, it was fantastic. It was, it was, it was mind blowing, and uh, and it actually sort of had a really big effect on me in, uh, in the sense that, um, well, you know, when none of us are sort of live a, uh, uh, you know, when none of us are here forever, so. Uh, you know, to do something like that and maybe realise I've got to do more things like that with my life because the design business can actually be very, it can be energy sapping um, as much as it's positive and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, um, and, you know, creative, it can also be sort of fairly full on, especially private company with four studios and a hundred people. Um, and, um, and, and what that gave me was really valuable recharge time. It took me just out of my comfort zone physically and mentally. And I, I, I came back, I felt like my brain changed, you know, for forever as a result of that. And I think more, more people should do those kind of things, put themselves in situations which are quite alien. In what way had you changed? Well, I just think I just had a, um, it made me realise what was important to me going forward now, as opposed to you know what's right for Pearl Fisher, and um, and uh, and it re-engaged my uh, sort of like my visual senses. Um, ep- every hour, I was staring at something that was epic, um, mm. be it a rainforest or um, something that looked like you were on the surface of Mars to you know, like on the set of Lord of the Rings, you know. I mean, it was at one point I thought I was really going up, you know, Mordor, you know, the, the clouds descended, it looked like, you know, there was something dreaded was going to happen. And then the next minute, you know, sort of after eight hours of, you know, trudging through darkness, you know, you're, you're sort of, 
gasping for air on the summit and um, and looking at things like uh, you know the awesomeness of that summit uh, you know the clouds are so far down below you and um, you know you, there are there are glaciers there and you know you're staying at a glacier and then you know and then afterwards you sort of process this all and then you look at photos of how it was you know 30 years ago and the glaciers you could touch them but when we were up there they receded quite a long way so Mm -hmm. it gave me a massive sort of insight into uh just environmental change and um and uh you know probably if things go on the way they are um you know there probably won't be any ice up there at all in another 20 30 years you know and you wrote an interesting piece on your uh website yeah following it in which you said um the understanding of the value of sustainable design as the most important driver of brand desire in the future and realising ultimately that if you are not desirable, you have no future. So mm. has, it changed your, um, has it changed your mindset on how brands need to behave and how design needs to help them? Yeah, I think it has. I think, I think you know, um, in our 25th year, we're sort of trying to re-engage something that's always been uh, talked about here and, and actually brought into various projects. But the theme of inbuilt sustainability, um, uh, embedding it um, through the solutions that we are trying to come up with and the conversations that we're having with our clients and um, and match ourselves with clients where sustainability is a sort of a is also embedded in the way that they're thinking about things. And um, you know, there's lots of you know talk at the moment, quite rightly, about sort of, you know, for example, plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and plastic oceans and, and all these things. And this is absolutely true. You know, you know, I've seen it firsthand. I was kite surfing in, you know, Greece recently. And, uh, and um, you know, and I, whilst I was kiting, I, I, you know, I hit a semi-submerged beer crate, plastic beer crate, and uh, found myself, you know, tumbling over into the water. And not only was that there in the water, I was, I was surrounded by garbage because actually... Uh, and on the island that we were at, all the garbage had to be shipped off the island by in containers, and one of these containers had fallen off, and uh, and it was it was literally littering from the sort of like the seabed, um, all this garbage was floating up. And it's not just about that though; it's about other things, which where if we thought about things at a root at a root sort of cause level, and we started to think about how we could design not just the objects, but the systems and the materials and the kind of like the end life of things, uh, that actually, that that is a, for, for consumer brands, you know, because that's what we, you know, what we do, I think that would be a, that, that kind of topic needs to be really kind of thought through from start to finish. Mm. You know, I'm not going to try and badger myself with some sustainability sort of, you know, kind of thing and just wear it for a year, but we're just trying to sort of re-engage with that a little bit more. And, um, and and try and get involved in some initiatives that, that sort of see how design can solve some of these problems as opposed to just kind of just, you know, adds to more of what's going on out there. And do you think there's, um, uh, there's a kind of a, almost a moral imperative on uh, the design community to uh, encourage our clients to have sustainability higher up their agenda? Because there are some um, people like Unilever who do have it at the very heart of their, um, their ambitions uh, but there are others for whom it feels like it's a bit of a corporate social responsibility kind of add-on. Do you think it's on us to encourage them to see the opportunities to uh, use sustainability in a way which can also be linked to good business? Yes, is the answer to that question. <laughs> that's, I completely think that's the right thing to do. And um, how do you think design can inspire great sustainable solutions? 
So, so by by yeah, that's I think the um, the real sort of that's the challenge, um, and I think it comes back to trying to think about you know the life cycle of what it is you're creating. Um, you know, we need things. You know, uh, everything that is man-made in this world has been designed. You know, could be by an engineer or an architect, but you know. Everything that's man-made has to be designed. So this is, you know, culture is defined by uh, the designed artifacts that we leave behind. That's why we go to museums to look at sort of like you know the arrowheads from the sort of the Bronze Age. You know, somebody designed that arrowhead, carved it out of a bit of flint, and you know it served a purpose. So right now we're doing the same thing in this world. We're creating objects which say something about the way that we live in our in our world, but we're creating a lot of. Uh, disposable uh, products which have a life you know like a thousand times and more the actual usage it, it breaks my heart when I go to my New York studio and I see the amount of sort of disposable cutlery and cups and things like that you know just just buy mugs and wash them up every night you know so um, it, it, it we need to think more about the kind of like the, the holistic way that things are used and People need to change their attitudes, and it's it's, it's a huge sort of um, you know, task that needs to be done. But designers, in their own own way, can solve little bits of it, sort of bit by bit. Um, and um, and and I think that uh, where you get then when you get real innovation will be through uh, people thinking about these things and caring and 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 thinking about you know how to solve a particular issue um, or legislation that says we've all got to kind of like you know change because if we don't change we're going to strangle the earth's resources of one shape or form or have mm. an impact on it and when there is ultimately I think uh, a sort of like a consumer vote when they when people just sort of say enough's enough um, that kind of pressure will, will, will also sort of force things to change but, but I think designers have just got a moral imperative to, to try and think about uh, you know how they can make things better from a sustainable uh, point of view and and you know, communicate the business benefits at the same time. Everyone's got to do what they what they feel is the right thing to do, but I think design can definitely make a change for better. And if we can do something in our own small way, then I'm really pleased about that. So that's it. Thanks to Jonathan for finding time in his schedule to talk to me. Uh, he's clearly someone who thinks quite deeply about design. Uh, and I feel that results in a distinctive purity in the ideas that characterise Pearl Fisher's work. He's an inspiring figure, and indeed, we have him to thank in part for this podcast, as it was his Challenges and Icons podcast that inspired us to begin on design. So I do recommend you go and check that out on all the normal channels. Uh, and that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed it, please do share it with someone who you think might get something out of it. And do subscribe. We have a couple of uh, exciting guests coming up. Uh, the next one will be Vicky Bullen. Uh, who is CEO of Coley Portobello. Uh, finally, a special message for the real hardcore folks who make it right to the end here. Um, there's no real feedback forum for the podcast, so if you love it, or indeed if you hate it, uh, let us know by tweeting us at OnDesignPodcast on Twitter. Thanks as always to Reese for the production support, and until next time, bye for now. Bye.